listen to this message, you will be challenged and encouraged through God's Word. Here at Heart Seas Family Life Church, it has always been our desire to see people's lives totally impacted and changed. His Word promises to accomplish that. For more information in regards to our church, you can call us at 225-274-1607 or visit us on the web at www.hflc.us. We look forward to hearing from you. Be blessed now as you listen to God's Word. So the word for you today. I'm going to be continuing uh, the Bible great series that we've actually been kicking off. And this is, the whole idea of this is, we've been looking at different stories throughout the Bible. We do this in this month every year. Uh, we select stories that are from the Bible and we bring them to you. Uh, we're actually kind of working through the Bible chronologically in order. So it's going to take us uh, several years to actually hit every one of the great stories in the Bible. But we're working diligently through them. And we're doing it uh, for a few reasons. Firstly, there are people here who don't necessarily know all of the stories in the Bible, that they don't know all of the stories in the Old Testament, and that's perfectly fine. No judgment zone here. Okay, we don't expect everybody to know every word in the Bible. Uh, the, the Old Testament, uh, in fact, if you are a new Christian here, we often recommend that you don't start in the Old Testament. The Bible is a book, but it's not a book like every other. You don't necessarily pick it up and start at page one and then read it through to the end. It's a book that you can dive into in different places. And we often recommend that if you are a new Christian, uh, that you start in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you learn all the stories about Jesus Christ, and then once you've done that, then move back into the Old Testament. So part of uh, what we do this month of each year is to bring you stories that you may never have heard before. Now, for those of you who have read through the Old Testament, it's going to be a reminder to you about what the story is. It's going to be a refresher for you, so to speak. But we don't do it just to tell you a story. We're not storytellers here. Uh, what we're trying to do is always bring you something which is of value to you today. And that's the exciting thing about the Bible, because some of these stories that we're going to relate to you and are relating to you are literally thousands of years old, but they are historical events. They are not just stories. They are historical events. But God's Word is called the Living Word. And it's a very good reason for that. It's because it has impact on your life today. So although these events happened in the past, they are relevant to you now. And what we try and do is to teach you what it is that God has for you within each of these stories. And, you know, we always bring you uh, every message. We do prayerfully, uh, guided by the Lord, and we just try and always try and make an impact. We know that you're not here to waste your time, and we're not here to waste your time either. So we always are praying that God will give us something for you. And, you know, my prayer up until a few months ago, each time I preached, was that uh, God give me a word for you. God help me to see, help me to help you see these stories in a different way, to get something fresh from these stories. But my prayer over the last few months has been different. Now when I'm asked to actually preach on a certain topic, instead of asking God to give me something which you haven't seen before, I'm asking him to give me something that I haven't seen before. I'm asking him to give me revelation in these stories as I'm reading them through. And in this one, he absolutely has done that. So I'm bringing you a message today. Uh, and if it doesn't do anything for you, it doesn't matter because it's already worked for me. Okay, so <clears throat> that's where we're coming from with this. And these, these stories, as I said, 
are very much a living thing. We're going to be talking today about a story that we're calling The Sacrifice. We're going to be calling uh, The Sacrifice. And it's going to be talking about an event that happened to the prophet Elijah. Okay, and some of you may have heard of Elijah in the Bible. Some of you may have heard of the prophets of the Bible. But what we're trying to do is to have you leave here, not just with uh, extra head knowledge, although that's important. We're going to try and teach you things that you maybe haven't heard before or seen before about the Bible. And I'm certainly going to be aiming to do that today. But we're looking really, rather than a head change, for a heart change, to bring you something which is going to impact on your life and the lives around you. So the prophet Elijah. Now before we move through into the story and look at what actually happened to the prophet Elijah, I want to actually look at who the prophets were. Because it's a fair question. All right, you're going to hear the prophet this and the prophet that. Uh, who were the prophets? So I'm going to give you some background here as to what the, who the prophets were and why the prophets are so important in our history. These are people, the prophets are people that God selected specifically, that he handpicked specifically to be mouthpieces for God, okay, to speak to the people on his behalf. Now, they filled other roles as well. You could say, if you like, that the prophets were kind of like pastors because they were teaching God's word, they were teaching scripture, but they were also tasked with not just teaching those people that believed in God, but also to bring back to God those people who had strayed away. Those people who had looked to other gods, that had looked in other areas for uh, what it is that they needed in their lives. They'd strayed away from God. And the prophets were brought in specifically. Their task, their, their, their number one task, if you like, was to bring God's children back to God. Now, at this time, throughout the Old Testament, there's a religious structure which is in place that began in Israel. And the way it looked is quite simply this. There were priests who, again, were appointed by God. And these priests had certain responsibilities, God-given responsibilities, for the people that they were responsible for. They were tribe leaders. They were people who they, the, the, the people would go to to actually speak to God through. Because at that time, the priests were like a mediator. They were the go-between, if you like, between the people and God. And these priests also had other responsibilities in the hands-on, literally hands-on, uh, day-to-day of everything that came with worshipping God in those days, which included the, 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 sacri- the sacrifice of animals, certain rituals that were expected by God. The priests were heavily involved with those things. In fact, they would butcher and prepare thousands upon thousands of animals that people brought to give to God as a worship sacrifice. So they were very much hands-on. But they were also responsible for the moral leading of the people, the moral teaching of the people. They were the people who were supposed to be giving the the tribes God's word and God's direction and making sure that they were living uh, obedient lives to God. The problem was many of the priests themselves, they became corrupt and they actually turned away from God and they led the people away into worshipping idols and false gods. And that sounds like a, oh dear, oh well, kind of a situation. The priests should have done this, but they did this instead. Oh well. But it's far more serious than that. It's incredibly serious. And this is not, as I said, just a story. There's going to be things that I'm going to talk about today which sound dark, which sound harsh, which sound hard. They're all factual. They are all historical. And I'm going to have you look at this story maybe in a different way to how you've looked at it before. These people, these leaders, these priests were not actually just leading their people astray a little. They were taking them way off of what it is that God had planned for them. They were involved heavily in the sacrifice of children. They were heavily involved in ritual prostitution. 
They were involved in very dark practices indeed. And this is the priests, those people that were responsible for looking after the welfare, spiritual and physical, of the people that were held, that were actually in their responsibility, that were in their care, so to speak. But the effect was far more than just spiritual. It had a real impact on people on their day-to-day living as well because these priests were actually going off and doing what it was that they wanted to do for their own benefit and to their own ends. It meant that the people that God had placed in their care were being left aside. The very people that God wanted to be looked after, the orphans, the widows, those who really needed the care were being not only ignored, not only neglected, but misused and mishandled. So these leaders came to despise God. They came to despise the holy things of God. And they would use their power to destroy people's lives, actively and proactively and intentionally. And all the time that this was happening, God was watching. All of the time. Now the way that God wants to be seen by us And the status that he expects us to hold him in is completely clear. It was completely clear back then, and it's completely clear today. And how does he make it clear? Well, you may have heard of these little things called the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments. Let's look in the book of Exodus 20, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Let me interject something here. At any point that you're reading anything in the Bible where it says, God says, I am the Lord your God, you better bet that the next verse is incredibly important. And God wants you to hear it. Because he's introducing himself and saying, hello, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Quite clear. In the start of the next verse, he actually says, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now, that couldn't be any clearer. The God of the Old Testament was a jealous God. He was a God that wanted his people to put God first in their lives. He's a God that wanted his people to be obedient and not to worship other gods. That's the God of the Old Testament. But here's the thing. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. It's the same God of today. Our God is a jealous God. He's a God that wants us to put him first in our lives. So God was watching generation after generation of his people turn away from him and worship other gods. His people that not only included the priests that were supposed to be teaching his people the right ways, but they were actually being led astray by the priests. So the people that God was trusting, giving the responsibility for, to make sure that the people knew God's word, were being led astray themselves and leading others as well. So what did God do? Well, he selected people that he knew he could trust. And he made them into prophets. And these prophets included Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Samuel, Elisha, and Elijah, who we're going to be hearing about today. Elijah was God's prophet between 874 and 852 BC. So he was alive thousands of years ago. 
And these prophets were God's mouthpiece. But they were more than that. They were the chosen ones that God had used to try and steer his people back to the right path. These prophets came from all different backgrounds, but the thing that most of them had in common was that they were used by God to set the people straight when they were rebelling against him and turning away from him. They came in the form of ex-shepherds, ex-priests, some of them actually were, ex-carpenters. But these people were all brought forward with that sole purpose of bringing the people back to God. So let's look now at how Elijah was used to do that very thing with a huge group of people that turned away from God and were now worshipping the false god Baal. These people were being led by the king of the time, and that's King Ahab. So Elijah, give you some background, he goes to Ahab and he says to them, he, he instructs the king, he says, call together the people of Israel and the 450 prophets of Baal and bring them all to Mount Carmel. So the Bible says, and makes it quite clear, there's a distinction. He not only is calling the people of Israel, but it highlights the fact that these prophets of Baal have declared themselves not a part of Israel. Because Elijah says, call together the people of Israel and the 450 prophets of Baal and bring them all to Mount Carmel. So I want you to look, if you would do, 1 Kings chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles, turn there, if you would. If not, uh, your iPad, your iPod, your iPhone, your iWhatevers, or just look at the screen up here. All right, and we're going to be diving into the story and pick up the story here in verse 20. And I'm going to read this through word for word. I want you to absorb this. I really want you to, to dive in and just feel this story. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So he's outnumbered 450 to 1. Okay, but this one has God. Okay, so now bring two bulls, he says. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut into the pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls, placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. I believe this is the first recorded uh, evidence of smack talk. He says, You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. 
Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they'd done this, he said, do the same thing again. When they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran round the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. A powerful story. A really powerful story. And it's stories like this in the Bible that we can read in isolation. And we can see God working in them and through these stories. But sometimes we can get lost in all of the drama. How many people like blockbuster movies? I mean, I like blockbuster movies. I like blockbuster movies. I like 90 minutes of not having to think about anything. But all I'm seeing in front of me throughout these movies is big explosions, car chases, fireworks, whatever it might be, noise, drama, and everything. And at the end of 90 minutes, I've been bombarded with lots of stuff that's happened. It's all entertained me, but I've learned zero. Now, that's great, and that's perfectly fine. I'm not complaining because I didn't want to learn anything. I just wanted just to have my brain sucked through my nose for 90 minutes. So that's basically why you watch a blockbuster movie. And that's how some of these stories can come across. This had all of that. This had fire coming down from heaven. It had Elijah putting water on the altar. It had 450 prophets all stabbing themselves and cutting themselves and screaming to their God. It had all of that blockbuster movie. But the difference here is this. We can learn stuff. There's a real message, which I believe is in these words. And I'm going to look to pull out three key points for you from this story. Three key points. I'm going to give you one point about Elijah. I'm going to give you one point about God. And I'm going to give you one point about the false prophets. So let's look at this very first point. Elijah didn't get tempted by the things of the world. Elijah's in that time where the priests are basically, they are creating and making golden idols. They weren't happy or satisfied with a God that they couldn't see. So they wanted to create something that they could actually have there, that they could touch, that they could get down and kneel in front of, that they could pray to, that they could worship. And that's what they did. They created these golden idols that they could look at. They were attracted by them. They were attracted by what the world had to offer at that point in time. And let's be honest, our life today is even worse than that. There are attractive things in this world. All around us, there are attractive pastimes. There are attractive places to go, attractive people to spend time with, people to do things with that we shouldn't really be doing. There's access now to anything and everything. If not in actuality so that we can touch it, then it's definitely 100% of stuff is available to us virtually. And it's available 24-7. 
It's available at our fingertips. And it's calling our name. We are surrounded by things that want our attention. And any one of these things, if we're not careful, they can become more important to us than anything else. And that includes God. Now, all of that is to, to make you aware. It's a red alert. It's a flashing light, if you were. But, but here's a, a very important point as well. We need to be aware that some of the things that can distract you away from God are not in and of themselves bad things. They are not necessarily bad things. There are things that can threaten our relationship with God that we can look at and see as being perfectly good. It could be our jobs. We might get a promotion. We might get a pay rise. We might get a job change, a better job offer. And they're all great things to have. And I'm not saying that any of those things are not great things because they are all great things. But the knock-on effect of that can be a negative thing. Because sometimes, you know, we've seen it many times in this church. People are praying and praying and praying to be blessed by God with a new job. God blesses them with a new job. They go to the new job. They get so busy, they never come back to church. And so they see that as the blessing. Rather than chasing the blesser, they are chasing the blessing. And they are consumed by that and they are focused on that. If you get a pay rise, if you get uh, the opportunity for overtime, I am not telling you for one second, don't take the opportunity for overtime. I'm not saying to you, don't look for promotion, because these are all positive things. What I am saying to you is it's easy, if we're not careful, to be distracted by these things, because those new responsibilities can sometimes take 100% of our focus. And that's fine for a period, for a season, for a time. You know what? I'm telling you right now, if you get offered a promotion and you take it, you better give that promotion 100% of your attention. If you get a new job and a pay rise, you better get, you know, give it 100% of your focus and attention. You better, you, you, you apparently deserved that in the first place. Make the most of it. Apply yourself to it. But temporarily, for a season, is different from it then becoming your new God. What it is that you are giving all of your time and your dedication to. So what else is out there that could be a pull away from God? Well, believe it or not, it could be your spouse. It could be a boyfriend or your girlfriend. It could be a new friend, period. It could be your kids. That's a big one, especially in, in Louisiana with your kids with, with this sport and that sport and the other sport. And again, I'm not knocking any of those things, but you must be aware of the time that it's taking for you and don't allow those things to become your new God. It could be a, a football team that wears purple and gold. It could, be, it could be all of these things. Again, there's nothing wrong with that or supporting those teams or putting time into those areas, but they can't be the most important thing to you. God must be the most important thing to you so these good things are good things but our God is a jealous God and we're not to put any other God before him as I said there is so much going on in our lives right now each and every one of us have something that could quite easily pull us away if we're not careful first John 2 15 through 17 tells us this do not love this world nor the things it offers you for when you love the world you do not have the love of the father in you For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Let me stress this to you. God has nothing at all against nice things. He has nothing against us having 
nice things. He has nothing against us being successful. He has nothing against us, believe it or not, with us being wealthy. He has nothing against that at all. Now, the verse here does not say that achievements are possession and, and possessions are not from the Father, but are from this world. It says the craving for those things is from the world. In other words, it's the craving that we have to be aware of, not the things themselves. It's the craving for these things. It's the desire that we have to have them at the expense of everything else. It's that craving which is from the world and it's not from God. We should never crave those things more than we crave our God. That is what that scripture is saying. So, Elijah, he wasn't pulled away. He didn't have his head turned by all the gold, all the glitter, and all the fun. Second point I want to make, and this point is about God, that you can pull from this story. God is holy. God is holy. Now, I'm going to get very real right now, and I'm going to be saying some things that may sound harsh, but they're not designed to be that way. I'm not planning on being that way. And I'm certainly not saying any of these things that I'm going to be covering shortly for shock tactics. It's literally just to make you aware of these things if you're not aware already. And if you are aware of them, to remind you of what you may have forgotten. When we use words to describe God, it's very, very easy to use words that we only use for God, that we, we, we know are true about God, but that we don't necessarily know exactly what it means. We can say God is holy, and we can believe God is holy, and we know that God is holy. But do we know what holy actually means? Do we know what it actually means? Holy, as a trait, means a spiritually pure quality. That's what holy means. It means that God is sinless. And because God is sinless, and because God is holy, it means he cannot tolerate sin. God cannot tolerate sin. And if he can't tolerate sin, it means he cannot leave sin unpunished and unpaid for. That's what holy means. 1 Kings 18.40, the last verse of the story that we just ran through. I want to revisit this last verse. It says this, Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Now Elijah didn't kill all 450 people by his own hand, but he gave the order to have it done. Now we need to understand that anything and everything that Elijah did was under instruction. He never did anything without instruction. And with Elijah being a prophet of God, he received that instruction from one place and one place only. And that was God. So am I saying that God instructed that all of these false prophets be killed? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's absolutely what it is that I'm saying. All the way through the Old Testament, There is story after story of God's judgment coming down on those that disobeyed him or that defied him or denounced him or that defied God's people, his children, that came against Israel, that came against anybody in the lineage of Abraham. God deemed that they were unworthy, unfit. If they were unrepentant and indignant, 
there was every risk that they were going to face the ultimate penalty. So here's some information for you that you may not uh, have actually heard before, and it might come to you, to you as a surprise. Realistically, if we look at every story that's recorded in the Old Testament, and not looking at all of the things that probably happened that weren't recorded in the Bible, but all of the recorded stories in the Old Testament, through them all, as a total, God killed over 25 million people. He killed over 25 million people with the flood, with plagues, with God's people, with lightning bolts, however and whenever he saw fit. So was the God of the Old Testament a bad God? Was he a cruel God? Was he a harsh God? Let me give you two answers to that question. The first thing is this. The God of the Old Testament was none of those things. He was a holy God. A holy God. And secondly, the God of the Old Testament was the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament is the God of today. Our God is holy. He has a spiritually pure quality. He cannot and does not tolerate sin. So on that bombshell, I'm going to tie it all together. And we're going to look at the third point. The third point is about Baal's worshippers. And it's this. Baal's worshippers didn't realize that God was the answer. They didn't realize that God was the answer. The answer to what? Well, the answer to everything. These people, they're all chasing stuff. They're chasing pleasure. They're chasing emotions. They're chasing happiness and fun. They're chasing the gold and the glitter. Anything, everything that fed their own selfish desires. They didn't have temptations and opportunities that other people didn't have. They just chose to give in to those temptations. And this is how so many people are today. They aren't doing bad things because they're bad things or because they're bad people. They're not doing wrong things because they're motivated to do, oh, you know, what wrong things shall I do today? That's not what people are doing today. But they are doing them because they're entirely unaware that God can provide them with a life which has enough joy, fulfillment, purpose in it that they will no longer be tempted by the other side of the fence, by the things that will pull you away, that can turn you away. The temptations will still be there. Each and every one of us has temptations. But those people that commit their lives to God, that are obedient to God, receive such blessing in their lives, receive such fulfillment in their lives, that they no longer need what's on the other side of the fence. Don't get me wrong, they're going to take a look over the fence every now and again, and they're going to think, oh, that might be nice. I've done it. I've looked over the fence and I've thought, that would that, be nice. I remember that from back then. That was, that was fun. I like that. I, want to, I might want to do that again. But then the next second, I'm, I'm, I know that I will get pleasure from doing that. But it will not compare to the joy that I have right now. It will not compare to a life of obedience and fulfillment through God. What these false prophets didn't understand as many, many people today don't understand, is that God was and is the answer to the problem. It's to the problem, every problem that you have, but he is the answer to the problem of sin. The problem of sin. My absolute belief is this, genuinely. 
if every Christian and every person that professes to be a Christian truly understood what God did for us through the death of his son, then this world would be an entirely different place. Why? Because the world would be full of truly thankful, grateful, repentant, unashamed Christians who lived truly free from guilt, from shame, and from unforgiveness. Let me tell you, the longer that I'm a Christian, and I'm a baby Christian, I'm eight years old as a Christian, so I'm a baby. The more people I speak to as a pastor, the more stories I hear about people and their pasts and their weights and their burdens, the more I come to realize why my life is no longer the life that it was. The clearer it becomes to me why I feel the way about God that I feel. And here's the reason. I fully accepted God's forgiveness. Fully accepted God's forgiveness. I did not understand God's forgiveness. I do not, to this day, understand God's forgiveness. But I accepted God's forgiveness. Here's what it is that I'm talking about. And this sounds like a press you down message. It's not. It's a lift you up message. It sounds like it's discouraging. Trust me, I'm encouraging. Because I'm, I'm giving you now the truth. And I'm going to strip it down to the basics right here and right now. Crash course in what it means to believe in Christ. Are you ready? People generally have the propensity to live like the people in today's story. People are wired to lean towards what looks good, smells good, feels good. People have that propensity within them. Why? Because that's in your sin nature, to go over to the other side of the fence, so to speak. But what you need to understand is this. Sin must be paid for. Sin must be paid for. God is a holy God. He cannot leave sin unpaid for. So it must be paid for. But get this. Instead of continuing to do what it is that God did, Every time someone did something disobedient to God, he, would, he had the option of smiting them where they stood. There are stories where people actually turn back to God, repentant stories. There are, people, there are stories of people going to God and pleading on behalf of the world. Noah was given the opportunity. He, I mean, thank God for him. He was given, he was, you know what, final chance, people. It's kind of what God was saying. Build an ark. And then he flooded the land and killed everybody else. So there are people who go back to God repentant, contrite, apologetic, all of those things. And he may decide not to bring judgment on them in that moment. But it's God's right to bring judgment at any point in time. And he did, several times over. The story after story after story in the Old Testament. You're reading through and you know, you're reading this, this, this. And then something happens you go, ooh. I'm reminded of like, like the, the, when the ark is on the, is on the cart. And the ark shouldn't have been on the cart. The ark should have been where God said the ark should have been. But the ark is on the cart. And the cart is bouncing along. The ark of the covenant, which is the symbol of where God rested during the day and during the night. The ark slips and starts falling off the cart. The guy who's at the back of the cart thinks, I need to stop this from falling on the ground. So he puts his hand out to stop it, touches it, and pop, he's dead. Why? Because he touched the ark when he shouldn't have done The story after story in the Old Testament where God will smite people there and then because of their disobedience. Because why? Because he is holy. And that was the God of the Old Testament. But you know what happened? He understood and realized that as a human race, 
we were, it was impossible for us to be righteous and holy. It was impossible for us to become righteous and holy in our own strength. Because of temptation, because of everything that was out there, our propensity is, our temptation is to always go that way. So what did he do? What did he do? He sent his son as the ultimate sacrifice to pay the sin debt once and for all. If I asked all of you right now to recite John 3.16, I'm pretty sure that 95 out of 100 of you would be able to do that. John 3.16. Let's look at that scripture right now. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life. That's not a small thing. And that's what's given to us. That's how much God loved the world. He gave us eternal life. He knew that the the sin that we had committed, the sin that we were committing, and the sin that we would commit in the future, all had to be paid for. Because God is a holy God. He can't not have it paid for. Does that make sense? If, If he doesn't have sin paid for, by definition, he is not a holy God. And he is a holy God. So he knew that that all had to be bought and paid for. So what did he do? He sent his perfect son to come down and be sacrificed on our behalf. Look at what it means for us. And I want you to really take a grasp, a grip of this verse. You may not notice it, but I'm passionate about this. Because if it's the one thing that I can do, and I say this continually, I just want people to see You don't need to know everything about the Bible, understand everything about the Bible. It's this, that you have already been given that you need to see. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 19. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. No longer counting people's sins against them. Brought us back to himself through Christ. Those words are powerful if you accept them and understand them and grasp them. Do you see how powerful it is? Our God is holy. Our God cannot tolerate sin. Our God cannot leave sin unpaid for. Our God paid that price for us. He paid that price for us. And what do we have to do to receive that gift? Just this. Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This message is called the sacrifice. And we've looked at the sacrifice that Elijah took place in. And again, it's a real blockbuster, dramatic story with all the fireworks and the lights, explosions and car chases. And it's a powerful story and you can draw these things through it. But it all turns back to the ultimate sacrifice. It all turns back to what it is that Jesus Christ has already done for us. So what is it I'm trying to say to you? What I'm saying to you is this. We are all, at some point, in some way, false prophets of Baal. 
We all have things in our lives that distract us, that turn us away towards sin, turn us away from God, and turn us towards sin. And this is not judgmental, because every 100% of the people with a pulse in this place are in that boat. We're all in the same position. We're all exactly the same. But what this message is all about is this, that the, the, the cost of that has already been paid. Because though we're like the false prophets of Baal, there is not an Elijah who's rounding us all up, bringing us down to the river, and having us all killed. That was their payment for our holy God. What's happened instead is this. God has sacrificed his son. He has given his son's life in payment of your sin. Past, present, and future. Now, why am I so passionate about this? I'll tell you why. Because the self-condemnation, the burden of guilt, the feeling of unworthiness, the sense of you can't possibly be forgiven for who it is that you are and what it is that you've done, is the number one thing which is stopping God's children from doing what God's children are supposed to be doing. The only difference between you and me is, is I've fully accepted the fact that God has forgiven me for every single thing that I've done sinful in my life, past, present, and future. I, the only difference between me and you is this. I have not got that burden on my shoulder. It's like me giving you a backpack with 75 pounds worth of bricks in it, sending you to the Florida Boulevard, and then asking you to walk with that 75-pound load on your back, from Florida Boulevard, in through the front door here. And I'm walking alongside of you. And you're weighed down by these bricks. 75 pound of bricks you're weighed down by. And I'm going to say to you, I can take those off you if you like. And you're going, no thanks, I'm good. <laughs> and then 15 steps later I'm saying, no really, I can, I can, I can take them off you. And you're like, oh, you know what, maybe just that little one there but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the rest here. I'm going to keep the rest. And that's how you're all living. If I had that now, wouldn't it be great if I could just go pop and you all had a backpack suddenly appear on there and the number of bricks that you are carrying now showed us. Showed us your belief level in the fact that God has forgiven you. All of those of you with 75 bricks in there, all weighed down by all of the things that you've done in your life, the decisions that you've made, the choices that you've done, the people that you've hurt, the things that you've done wrong when you knew they were wrong and you went ahead and did them anyway, twice, just to make sure that they were wrong. All of those things are in your backpack, and you're not letting them go. I've got a question. How very dare you? Jesus Christ died on a cross and asked you to leave your backpack at the foot of it. And yet you pick it up and you're walking around and you're carrying it with pride. How very dare you. It's been paid for, people. It's been paid for. There's nothing you can do which can change that. Nothing you have done which will change that. It's been bought and it's been paid for. And what I'm going to ask you to do is this. I'm going to ask you to get your feet right now. We're going to offer the opportunity for salvation for people who haven't yet known Christ. But for the rest of you, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you just to mentally, to spiritually, to physically, take your backpack off and leave it on the seat you sat in. Walk out of here free. 
would like to thank you for listening to this message today. We pray that your life has been challenged by what you've heard, but we also know it will be changed as you put God's Word into effect. At Heartseas Family Life Church, our doors are always open to help. If you need any more information or just a friend to listen, we are here. Call us at 225-274-1607 or email us at pastorp at hflc.us. Remember, put God first in your life and everything you do will prosper. We look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.